Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. history, every army, every warrior, every soldier has recognized the importance of armor and the advantage that being armored gives in battle. They know that uh, the protection that it gives as well as the offensive capabilities of it. Even today in our modern depictions of heroes and warriors, we often give them armor whether they're realistic depictions showing the real armor that our soldiers wear on the battlefield today or something a little more fanciful like the metal suit of armor that Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, wears. Even our fantasy depictions of alien cultures in our science fiction portray types of armor, protection. Why? Because we all seem to recognize that when you're at war, the advantage goes to the warrior who wears armor and knows how to use it, who knows how to use the weapons and armor of war. As Christians, we must take the same um, approach. We must make the same uh, realization. We are in a war spiritually. Even if you don't think so, even if you don't understand it, you are being warred against as a Christian by an ancient evil named Satan, who we just finished studying, and do you know your enemy? And when we talk about Satan, you need to remember, we're not dealing with the silly little red devil with a pitchfork and horns and a bifurcated tongue and pointy tail going ah, at you. Okay? We're not talking about that. That's a fictitious image of Satan. That is not who our enemy is. Our enemy is a crafty, intelligent, malevolent being who is not only a master of disguise, but also of lies. And he wants to kill you. Thankfully, God tells us about our enemy, but also how to fight our enemy. Last week, we began looking at the tools, talking about putting on the full armor of God. And today, we're going to pick up right where we left off and learn about the rest of the armor so that we can be equipped with the full armor of God. If you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6, where you'll find the full text of the armor of God passage in verse 10 through 18. But today, we're going to focus specifically on verse 16 through 18. It says this, In all circumstances... Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus telling them about the armor of God. And the various pieces of armor that we are to wear. And last week we looked at three of the pieces. We looked at the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the foot coverings of readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. But the list continues. Paul says in addition to these, you, also, uh, you need also in all circumstances these three things. The shield of faith, 
the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, before you get excited and try to convince your wife that you need a real suit of armor, as well as a sword and a shield, understand that these pieces of armor are not physical implements of war. Because our primary enemy as Christians is not a physical one. Our primary enemy is a spiritual one. Now, don't misunderstand that. Some people think as Christians, oh, we don't have any physical enemies. That's baloney. We have physical enemies because anybody who is not with God is against God. That makes them our enemies. We have physical enemies who will hunt us and try to hurt us. If you need any more uh, proof of this in our culture, look at Sweet Cakes Bakeries. Look at how they were driven out of business. Their livelihood was destroyed by people who hate God and hate his word. We have physical enemies as well. But our primary enemy, our most dangerous enemy by far, is not a physical one. He is a spiritual being. And so we must have spiritual weapons of warfare to battle him. So what do these spiritual implements look like? Well, let's take a look at each one that was listed in that passage. First, the shield of faith. Over the years, I've heard the armor of God preached and taught many times, and I'm sure you have as well if you've been a Christian for very long. And each time that I heard it taught, I was somewhat surprised and more than a little disappointed at what the teacher or preacher had to say, because they would always make the claim that the list of the armor of God only contains one weapon, one implement that's intended for offense in the battle. The sword, that's the only offensive implement. And it always struck me as so very odd, because while the sword is the most obvious implement that is offensive in the list, it's not the only one. A shield can be wielded both defensively and offensively. Now, scholars argue about which armor Paul has in mind when writing this passage, whether he was talking about traditional Jewish armor or the armor of the Roman legions that occupied Israel. Regardless of which one he had in mind, the people that Paul was writing to would have been familiar with armor, and in particular, they would have known Roman armor very well because Rome was very powerful during his day, had soldiers stationed everywhere. They would have most likely seen soldiers marching in formation, carrying swords and shields and spears. Perhaps they were even familiar with the way in which Romans fought. If so, they would have known that a shield is more than just for defense. The Romans excelled at warfare in their day. And they had several styles of shield uh, that they carried, depending on which role the soldier uh, carrying it was, was involved in. Some shields were very simple. They were round-shaped. They were circles some were oval-shaped with significant elongation. But perhaps no shield is so iconic and so widely recognized as Roman as the scutum. It was curved and rectangular, and it weighed about 22 pounds. It was made from three sheets of wood um, that were glued together and then covered with a canvas and leather. On the front of the shield, in addition to any decorative and ornamental details, there was a very functional item called a boss or an umbo that was usually spindle-shaped. 
And the design and shape of the shield made it extremely sturdy, and it was used to protect a soldier's whole body defensively, and it could even be used to help protect the ranks of soldiers forming up behind you in what was called a testudo or a tortoise formation. You're probably familiar with this. You've probably seen it in movies at some point. They used something similar in the movie that came out this year called Warcraft. The soldiers put their shields up into a formation. They boxed themselves in with their shields to protect from all sides. That's what the tortoise formation looked like. It was a box of shields that surrounded you and protected you on all sides so you could advance and be protected. The soldiers protected each other in this fashion from the front, from the sides, even from attacks from above. And as the deadly formation would advance, soldiers would use their swords to thrust out between the openings, the narrow gaps between the shields. This made the formation not just a defensive one, but an offensive one that was highly effective. And it's depicted in several places um, in, in Roman records. The Roman writer Suetonius records the account of a rather remarkable warrior um, using his shield. And I th thought this was very interesting because it shows us the offensive capabilities of the shield, not just the defensive capabilities of it. Suetonius wrote this in a record uh, of a warrior, a famous warrior named Cassius Scavia. Uh, in his account, uh, he says of Cassius, With one eye gone, his thigh and, and, and shoulder wounded, and his shield bored through with arrows in a hundred and twenty places. He continued to guard the gate of a fortress put in his charge. He boarded the ship and drove the enemy before him with the boss of his shield. That's a historical account. That's not a myth. That's not a recreation. That is a historical record of this famous warrior. Did you see that? The dude is totally without a weapon as far as we would think of a weapon like a sword. And yet he takes up his shield as an offensive weapon and bashes his enemies before, them, before him. And he drives them back onto their ship that they were emerging from. That guy was a boss. That guy was hardcore. He used his shield offensively to bash the enemy. But the shield, it wasn't just used to bash forward. It was, could also be driven horizontally in a punching motion to strike your enemies. So what does it mean for us as Christians? What does it mean to take up the shield of faith, this weapon that is, that is both defensive and offensive, that is versatile and highly functional and was such an essential tool in the weapons of warfare throughout the years? Such an essential weapon that no centurion would be without one. So what does it mean as Christians for us to take up a spiritual shield, the shield of faith against Satan? Well, first of all, what is faith? See, we have mystified and jargonized the word faith in Christianity to the point where many of the faithful couldn't even give you a functional definition of faith. But here it is, plain and simple. What is faith at its most bare bones level? Faith is trust. Trust. It is trust in God. And it's not just the sense of mental agreement with the fact of God's existence. Faith goes beyond that. You see, making this mental assertion that God exists, that's not real faith. Even demons believe in God and they tremble. 
They know, they mentally assent to the fact of God's existence because they've seen him. But they don't trust him. They don't love him. They don't worship him. Faith goes beyond mental assent, mental agreement. Faith is trust in God, that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Faith is this belief, this total trust, this total confidence that God is who he says he is. Even though we may not have direct physical, touch it, see it, taste it, smell it, hear it, physical evidence that substantiates our belief. Now, is there evidence out there that shows that God is there, that he created the universe? Absolutely. Absolutely. But our faith goes beyond just what we see. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that we don't see. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, I want to read to you exactly what it says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 3 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Interesting, isn't it? Faith deals with things that we don't see directly. We may see evidences of those things, but we don't see God himself. We cannot see God visibly here and now, yet we know he exists. We have faith, confidence that he is there. I love that last part. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so very interesting when you look at what pagans and atheists believe about the creation of the world. The Big Bang. And they talk about it with such confidence. Even though they weren't there. They never saw it. They have false faith in this event. That something happened for no good reason, for no purpose, and created us. It's always so funny arguing with atheists because what's the point in arguing? There's no purpose to all of this in their worldview. So why are we debating? Why do you care? If this is all meaningless, why are you taking the time? They have to borrow from our worldview. They have to steal from our worldview just to argue. Just to have a reason to argue. It's funny. Faith. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Trust. Our trust as Christians is in God. Our faith is in Him. And that trust in God that He is who He says He is and will do what He says He will do is a shield against the attacks of our enemy Satan. Faith extinguishes the arrows of doubt and fear that are fired at us from every direction. Now, I'm not saying you won't have doubts, you won't have questions. But when these arrows are fired at us by Satan, our trust in God leads us to investigate, leads us to pursue answers from his word, leads us to, to uh, try to find uh, information so we can trust him more deeply and more resolutely. As our investigation as Christians continues in his word, as our reading of it continues, when we have these, these doubts, these moments of fear, we find in God's word over and over and over again that God 
does what he says he will do. He always keeps his word and he is always good. Faith extinguishes those arrows of doubt and fear. Our faith in God is a shield that if wielded correctly, it not only defends us from attacks, but it allows us to offensively move against our foes, proclaiming truth boldly and testifying to God's work in our own lives. Take up the shield of faith and brandish it well. Satan will be on the run. Next item on the list, the helmet of salvation. A helmet is awfully important, as many of us have found out through the hard way over the years. The only time I've ever had to really go to the hospital for anything significant was when I fell and hit my head snowboarding one time. Uh, I had gone with the Boy Scouts when I was in fifth or sixth grade. Uh, We had gone up to Snowshoe in West Virginia. And uh, I, in my infinite wisdom, had decided that I didn't need to rent a helmet as well to go with my snowboard because I wasn't going to fall. Ha ha. Yeah, that didn't turn out too well for me. I ended up hitting a patch of ice just right that I went all the way to the ground really hard, hit my head, and suffered a small concussion, uh, which was a very unfortunate and totally avoidable event. If I had only been wearing a helmet, I probably would have just been able to get up, walk away, and just be like, ow, that hurt. All right, keep boarding. Helmet is very important. It protects the center of our thought the center of our reason. And as for armor in battle, our soldiers even today wear helmets. Not just our soldiers, but our police officers when they're on the SWAT team and they are trying to protect and rescue people. They will go in wearing not only their full armor on their body, but also a helmet so that they can protect any inju- from any injuries that might be sustained to their head. Why? Because a head wound is many times fatal. In fact, most times fatal. We've got to protect the noggin. So how do we do that spiritually? With the helmet of salvation. As Christians, you and I do not need to fear injury from our enemy, Satan. He can wound our bodies. Satan is more than capable of afflicting our bodies by using our physical enemies sometimes by using his power. But Satan cannot harm our souls. He has no power over us spiritually. Do you understand that? That Satan ultimately has no power over us spiritually? He has nothing. Our souls do not belong to him. Make no mistake, he will try to affect your spiritual existence by messing up your physical existence. But he has no power over you spiritually. He has no authority over your soul. There's only one who can destroy a soul, and that is the Father. As Christians, we know that our salvation is absolute. That when we are in Christ, our salvation is resolute. That There is nothing that Satan can do to steal it from us. It's not saying that we can't walk away from God, but rather saying that there is nothing that we can do to be taken from the Father's hand. There is nothing that Satan can do to drag you out of God's hand. 
Satan is not more powerful than God. The salvation that we have through Christ, we wear this as a helmet. We put this on as protection spiritually from the shots that Satan levels at us. How? By remembering and recognizing daily that we are being washed of our sins, that we are being saved, that we are saved. This this wonderful understanding, this wonderful hope that we have for salvation, it helps us as Satan tries to afflict our bodies. I'll never forget one of the most heart-wrenching stories that I've ever heard. It's about this little girl that uh, she went to one of my favorite preacher's churches, and she was six, seven years old. She had this debilitating disease in her bones that made them very fragile and um, causes your lifespan to be fairly short. The doctors had basically given her um, until about nine years old to live. And her family, of course, heartbroken, trying to treat each and every day as a treasure. And this preacher, this favorite preacher of mine, went to her and was talking to her about faith, about grace, about heaven. And, you know, how... how was it that she had such joy, such happiness each day, in spite of being in pain, in spite of the debilitating disease that she was suffering from. And she said that my hope isn't in salvation from my disease. Now, paraphrasing. But my hope isn't in my salvation from my disease. My hope is in the salvation that's coming. My hope is in the world that's coming after this. Because I know that even if God doesn't heal my physical body here and now, even if he doesn't save this physical body here and now, that he's going to give me a new one one day where I can run and play just like all the other little kids. Beautiful. She wore salvation as a helmet. And finally, the last implement that Paul talks about here The sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? This offensive weapon on this list. We're told outright in verse 17. It is the word of God. The scriptures. The Bible. If you grew up in church, in particular if you were a uh, Christian church, Church of Christ kid, or if you were a Baptist church kid, you might have done a little something called Bible Bowl. Anybody do Bible Bowl? Anybody? No? Okay. All right. Nobody did Bible pool. All right. Awkward. All right. We got, we got one. All right. We got one. So Bible Bowl, it's definitely a, a very distinctive thing to those particular denominations. It was a game all about scripture memorization and recall. Uh, and I was never very good at it because I'm not good with numbers. So even if I managed to memorize the words of a particular passage, the numbers would get all jumbled in my head. Um, so uh, I, I still struggle with that as an adult, not just as a kid. I still struggle with trying to memorize things and keeping numbers in my head. Um, but uh, uh, I remember we would, we would do a little bit of this when I was, I was very young in church growing up. And uh, we would do uh, these preparations for Bible Bowl. And you did something called sword drills. Okay? You might have done this if you went to Bible camp as well. If you went to like a Christian camp growing up, you might have done sword drills. Sword drill was a term that we used for testing your Bible knowledge. Testing the knowledge of the sword of the Spirit. 
But you haven't thought of your Bible that way before, have you? As a sword? See, most of us treat our Bibles with almost this mystical fear and appreciation. Some of us uh, treat it as holy enough that we just don't pick it up. We set it on a shelf. We set it on a stand. We have a family Bible that never gets opened, collects dust. We know truth is to be found there, but we don't like to pick it up. I've met people that venerated their Bible so much that they wouldn't even highlight verses or take notes in the margins of their Bibles because it was holy and you don't touch it. Friends, a sword is a tool meant for hard use. A sword is a tool meant to be wielded, meant to be sharpened, meant to be fought with. It's going to get a little dirty. It's going to get a little wrecked over the years. There's an old statement, and it might be cliche, but I find it meaningful, is that a Bible that's falling apart and highlighted shows a soul that's not falling apart. A warrior who's afraid to draw his sword and get it a little dirty is never going to be an effective soldier. And most likely is going to get himself killed. As Christians, we can't afford to leave our swords sheathed. We can't leave our sword in its scabbard. If your Bible is on a shelf somewhere collecting dust, or if you don't even know where it's at because you haven't seen it in so many years, may I submit to you that you are defenseless. You are defenseless in your battle against Satan. You're defenseless. Even if you have part of the other pieces of armor, the armor of God, Remember what Paul said at the beginning? Put on the full armor of God. You don't get to pick and choose which pieces, folks. And may I submit to you, if you don't have your Bible open, you can't know the rest of the armor of God. Don't be afraid to use your sword. Don't be afraid to use your Bible cannot hope to stand against lies if you don't have truth. You can't have any hope of defending against hopelessness if you aren't reading where your hope comes from. Without your sword, you are defenseless and you will never be able to fight back against Satan. And over the years, many people have tried to discredit and deny the word of God, the sword of the spirit. They've tried to disprove it. They've tried to disgrace it. They've tried to disparage it. Because Satan, who empowers such people, knows that if he can disarm us, if he can take away our sword, we will be in a sorry state for sure. If he can get us to lay down our arms willingly, then he's already won. Do not surrender your sword. Take it up. Fight with it. Defend with it. Learn to wield it as though it were a part of your body, an extension of your arm, or you will be surprised by how, uh, how much damage Satan will do to you. If you take up your sword and let it become a part of who you are, you'll be surprised in the opposite on how much damage we can inflict upon the enemy with it. Take up your sword. Don't be afraid to do this. Right now there's a leader of a very large church He's listened to by thousands of people, tens of thousands of people each week, who says that the Bible 
It's not the foundation of our faith, because if it were, Christianity would be on flimsy ground. It would be resting on a house of cards that would come tumbling down, because we all know that the Bible's not accurate, but... May I submit to you that any church leader, any preacher, any teacher who comes to you and says that the Bible can't be trusted and it's not the foundation of Christianity, may I submit to you that they're not a good teacher to follow? They say, the same teacher says, oh, well, our faith is built on Christ. Yes, it is, but how do we know about Christ? The Bible! It's not magical. Take up your sword. Be prepared to fight because here's how I fight that leader. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Here's how I fight that leader. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 through 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his word, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Anyone who says that the word of God doesn't prove true is a liar according to the word of God. And if this leader doesn't repent, God help him. Paul says, with all of these implements at our disposal, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the foot coverings of readiness that come from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we are equipped to fight the enemy. But he says we need more than just the full armor of God. We need the power of God himself to overcome our adversary. And to that end, Paul says that we should be alert and we should pray. It is not a coincidence that prayer is listed among the implements and weapons of spiritual warfare. You want to know how we defeat our enemy? Pray. Ask God to fight. Prayer is a powerful tool in our spiritual arsenal and not just in the ways that we often think of prayer. When we think of prayer most often, we think that there are only two kinds of prayer. Prayers of supplication and prayers of intercession. These are prayers in which we ask for something like healing or provision or wisdom or some other gift from God to be bestowed. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers. We're told to ask for what we need. But there's another type of prayer, there's many types of prayer, but there's another type of prayer that we don't use at all in the church nowadays. At least not in the church as a whole. There's a few that do. This type of prayer is called imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayer is a request for God's judgment and wrath upon somebody. It's essentially asking God to fight, to avenge, to destroy and we don't often pray that way, even though we should, even though it is a common type of prayer in the Old Testament. Guys, we should pray that way all the time against our spiritual enemy, Satan, and against those who will not turn from Satan. 
And the way it goes is this. God, I, I can't stand against Satan without you. Please get him. Please get him. It is a call out to God for him to fight because he is more than capable of fighting. He is more than capable of defeating our spiritual enemy where we are not. And this goes for our physical enemies as well. Guys, don't be afraid to pray that if someone will not repent, they will not change, that God will bring them low. Not necessarily destroy them altogether, but bring them low so that they will see. They will see their error. They will see they are wrong and they will repent and be changed. That is my prayer for this leader who disparages the Bible. I pray that God brings him low. That God will wipe out that church. Not because I wish him ill, but because I want him to turn from his false belief that the Bible is not trustworthy. Sometimes that's the only way that things work is when we are at our lowest, when we are at rock bottom in our lives is the only time sometimes that we will see the goodness and grace of God because we have nothing else. And praise God for those moments. Praise God for those moments. Sometimes we pray for the physical destruction of our enemies. In a world where people exist who, on behalf of their false blood god, decapitate people, drown them, burn them alive, crucify them. We pray for the destruction physically of our enemies if they will not repent and turn to Christ. Friends, here's my encouragement today. I know that many of you have been pressed on by the enemy. Some of you for a very long time without reprieve. And you need to pray that prayer. God, please fight on my behalf because I cannot win on my own. Please, God, get him. Rescue me. Here's the great news. God does. He will come to your rescue. In fact, he already has. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came and died to save you and protect you. Jesus dove on the grenade of our sin, saving us from it. But more than that, he has laid the groundwork for the final victory that is coming, where Satan will be defeated and driven from this world entirely and into his eternal punishment in hell. And today, friends, you can have victory because of Jesus. I'm not telling you that instantaneously your problems are just going to disappear. But he'll walk with you through them. He will be there with you through them, giving you hope and joy because you recognize that there is something far greater coming, that God's final word is not yet fulfilled but will be. You can have freedom because Jesus has paid the price for your sin. You can have hope because he is alive. He is not dead. You can have life because he died to give you life. Not just here and now, but eternally. The question is, are you ready to receive? Are you ready to acknowledge and to have faith, to trust in God.
Friend, if God is calling to you, if he has been leading you and prompting you and pushing you and drawing you here, this is why. It is time to follow and obey Christ. And if you're ready for that, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you're ready to receive from him what only he can give, then this is a time for you Say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you're ready, come forward as we stand and as we sing together. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.